For those of you who don't know me, my name is Kevin, and I'm one of the elders of the church here, and it's my honor to bring you the financial update for sort of uh, partway through the year. So here we go. Talk about expenses and revenues for our church. Uh, so far this year, our operating revenue is at about $187,000 in round figures. And that's from your weekly giving and payments for events like family camp and that sort of thing. And our operating expenses to date have been about 190000 That's for salaries, the ministries that we um, participate in, and administration, maintenance, and events and that sort of thing. So we're currently a deficit of about $3,000, which probably isn't too bad considering it's in this magnitude of $190,000 expenses. Um, we have a storehouse, which is we take apart 10% of all of the giving that comes in, and we set that aside for support of Christian and community projects and for apostolic support and development of Christ Central Churches in Canada. And about half of the storehouse goes to projects and about half of it toward the apostolic support. So year-to-date so far, we have... Uh, our, our primary project has been uh, with regards to Missionary Aviation Fellowship, which Martin and Ann Tubasing have uh, left us and gone to be part of. And uh, so we've put about $6,500 toward that, and we're contributing about 500 a month towards their adventure. And uh, Green Hill Lake Camp, uh, we've provided uh, over $2,000 in support of that and for various other charities all for a total of about 10500 that we've given out, and about $10,000 of the storehouse has been used towards apostolic support. So that's for traveling to Vancouver and Charlottetown and that sort of thing to care for the church plants that we have out there. And also for Canadian team meetings. So we meet uh, three times a year generally. And uh, other expenses for the apostolic support, in case you weren't aware of this, uh, come from a designated gift that we received from Christ Central Churches in the United Kingdom, which helps us uh, along in that endeavor as well. Uh, so that's, that's the uh, picture for the giving to date. Now, as far as our regular giving, in spite of not having a large deficit, which I mentioned is about $3,000 over the 190000 expenses up until the end of August, our overall giving is significantly less than our budget giving. We increased our budgeted giving plan, uh, mainly to cover the cost for our additional staff. And the average weekly giving is approximately $517 a week, less than we budgeted for. That was as of the end of August. And uh, actually it's declining so that we're now $572 a week, less than what we had budgeted for as of the end of September. So this means that if our expenses were not significantly less at this point, we would be reporting a $22,000 deficit, which would be quite significant for us. So if you're part of this local church and are not currently giving or are giving less than you're able, please give some thought to this. And uh, as mentioned, in our newsletters and email updates, we are now able to offer convenient electronic funds transfer <clears throat> for any who want to sign up so that you can give monthly to the church. Uh, via direct debit from your bank account, and sign-up sheets are uh, available from the church office or electronically. So that's that bit. Pardon me? They are there. Thank you. Okay. The forms are at the welcome table in case somebody missed that. Um, as for the building... Um, as you can see, we're not meeting in our own building. We're meeting in rented facilities, and we've been meeting here for over five years now. And as many of you are aware, we would like to be meeting in a location that we could call home. Um, it would be so much better in many practical ways and so much less work for set up and tear down each week. We have some heroes in our midst who get up at 7 in the morning and, and traffic all the materials back and forth, and then they spend the first part of their day afternoon uh, putting it all back away again so um, we have been looking at various possible yeah give them a hand <laughs> we 
We have uh, been looking at various possibilities over six years now, and we have been blessed with uh, some substantial financial gifts that have enabled us to save over $450,000 toward the cost of a new facility or to help us rent or renovate our downtown building, which is valued at approximately $350,000 on the market today if we were to sell it. So we decided uh, as an eldership uh, and together as a uh, as leaders to um, focus on the downtown area of the church as the uh, preferred location. So we've looked quite a distance out and quite a distance in, so to speak. But uh, we're, we're, uh, we're, try we're trying to stay with the plan of staying in the core of the city. And uh, so we looked at one building that we were uh, thinking we might be able to do, would be really a good location for us. And the size-wise, it was good. It's in the range of $1.8 million to buy and uh, would have required extensive renovations to make it suitable for our use. Uh, we talked to the bank and found out that in order for us to be approved for and to support a building purchase and mortgage of about a million dollars, which would be the case in this situation, we would need to show that we had liquid assets, in other words, cash flow that we don't use for normal operating expenses like salaries and such, uh, of uh, over a three-year period, so we have to demonstrate that for three years to, to a banker and say, yeah, we can do this. And uh, that would, the magnitude of that is that it would be equivalent to about 100 persons in here giving $20 a week more than they already give uh, over and above what they already give to the church. And this pattern would need to be sustained for another 15 years to cover the cost of mortgage amortization period. So as you can see, it's a, a significant challenge to us. And given that we're actually uh, struggling to maintain, uh, we're falling $500 a week or so, almost 600 now, behind in our regular giving, it's difficult to imagine that we can, we can uh, even with great faith, uh, imagine that we can sustain that, practically speaking, at this point. So we are saying um, we don't see in the foreseeable future um, that this is a likely thing but we're open to anything that God can do. And uh, we, uh, we look forward to uh, God's provision for us, and we would ask you to keep praying for direction for our church as we go forward and see uh, what we have in store ahead for this. But we wanted to make sure that you just had an update as to where we were at with regards to uh, searching for a place of our own. Thank you for your attention. Now on to better things. Hi guys. <clears throat> so my name is Brent Smith. I'm uh, one of the other elders here at Christ Central, and uh, we're glad that you're here if you're joining us for the first time. Um, I'm struggling with a bit of a cold this week, so if my voice cracks and whatnot, you'll just have to bear with me. I took some Neocitrin this morning, and then I realized it expired in 2006, so... If I just fall over mid-sermon, you'll know why. <clears throat> so, uh, yesterday, uh, for those who were a part of it, uh, Kinyanga, uh, one of the uh, uh, members of the family from Burundi that have joined us since uh, last, uh, I think like last December or so, Kinyanga got married, and uh, so we were able to, to watch that wedding and actually be a part of it uh, via the magic of Skype, and so it was a great time. So Kinyanga is now married to Pamela, and he'll be coming back in November, and then we just need to pray that Pamela can return sooner than later, or come sooner than later, uh, to be with her husband. And so in light of that, uh, tonight at TAG, uh, we'll be praying for uh, the church there in Burundi, uh, I, I Skyped with uh, the pastor there, Pastor Anatole, and uh, he had some things to, to prayer concerns to pass along, so I invite you out tonight and I can give you an update on that and we can uh, get behind them in the work that they're doing there. <clears throat> so we're continuing to look uh, at Hebrews and um, the study guides for this week, uh, for your life group, are out on the welcome table, so feel free to pick one of those up. Um, so, 
Our, oh, the fonts are all messed up, but that's all right. So Jesus is better than Moses is our, is our topic this morning. And uh, before we get into our text too much, uh, we want to just get a little background on who Moses is and, uh, and kind of get a, a first century uh, Jewish Christian view of who Moses is. Because if you remember, we said that Hebrews was written to a house church or a group of house churches uh, that would be uh, mainly compri- com- composed of Jewish Christians. And so uh, to really get the impact of this message that says Jesus is greater than Moses, uh, we have to kind of get a mindset like, like they, they would have had when they received it because our idea of Moses could be quite a bit different than them seeing as how we're 2,000 years removed and on the other side of the world and greatly influenced by Sunday School Flannel Graph and Charlton Heston. <clears throat> okay? So, so that we have an even playing field starting out, uh, I'll give you my, my Coles Notes version of the life of Moses so that we're all on the same page. And then we'll kind of look at how first century uh, Jewish people viewed Moses. And then we'll, we'll go on from there. So, if you remember the story of Moses, and many of you have, know from growing up in, in church and whatnot, but so the Israelites are slaves in Egypt, and it says that they're multiplying greatly, okay? And so Pharaoh looks out at the Israelites, and he says, wow, these guys have a lot of time on their hands. They have a lot of babies. It should be very similar to if he was here. It would be a similar message he would bring. Anyways... So he say they'll have a lot of time on their hands. There's a lot of babies. We've got to put a stop to this, okay? So he develops a plan where he says, I'll work them harder. They'll have less time. There'll be less babies. Boom, plan solved, okay? Work them harder. They'll be more tired, less babies, and we'll keep them kind of contained, okay? What he failed to realize is that after you have a few babies, you kind of operate in sleep deprivation anyway, right? So it doesn't really matter if you're more tired. You carry on life as normal. So he worked them harder, but the Bible says they just grew even more, okay? So plan A, scratch that one out. Plan B was to take the Hebrew midwives, turn them into henchmen, and get them to kill all the baby boys as they're born, okay? So there's a woman named Jochebed. She takes her baby. She puts them in a basket, puts them in the river, okay? And the princess, Pharaoh's daughter, finds the baby, adopts him as her own child, names him Moses, and in an odd turn of events, gets Jochebed to nurse him and raise him, okay? So Moses' life starts out, he's raised and taken care of by his biological mother, but he's the adopted son of of Pharaoh's daughter, okay? So he grows up in the palace, but nursed by his mother. So it's kind of a miraculous thing right from the get-go. When he gets older, he kills an Egyptian, gets scared, runs off into the desert, talks to God, comes back to Egypt, And with the help of his brother Aaron and some ten plagues of death and destruction from God, frees the the Israelites from Egypt. They go back out in the desert, split the Red Sea, off, and they're free, right? We're we're just getting going. That's like chapter two. When they're out in the desert, he goes up in a mountain, talks to God, gets the law of God, from God, the basis for all of Judaism, okay, comes back, and then a whole bunch of miraculous things, leads the people through the desert to the doorstep of the promised land, writes the first five books of the Bible, and the Bible tells us that he died when he was 120 years old, and when he died, his eyesight was clear, and he was just as strong as he was when he was 20, without LASIK eye surgery, or a juicer, or yoga, or cod liver oil. Okay? <clears throat> so that's the life of Moses. 
my version at least. And that's just the highlights. Okay? So because of who he was, and because of the way God used him over the nation of Israel, he was elevated uh, in Jewish religion above any other person who ever lived. So Jewish writings around this time refer to Moses as the holy prophet, our counselor, the best of kings, a man of special holiness, that he was loved by God and all humanity. And there is a general notion in the Jewish community that all the best thinkers, all the most celebrated Greek philosophers were just plagiarizing Moses. Okay, one of them said, what is Plato but Moses speaking Greek? So that's their view of Moses at that time. So, in fact, a first century Jew would have had an even greater esteem for Moses than angels. So when the title came up, Jesus is greater than, than, than Moses, and you felt that was a bit anticlimactic, seeing as how we already talked about Jesus greater than angels, that wasn't the case for a first century Jew. They would have regarded Moses as even better. So this isn't a step back from chapter 1. It's a step beyond chapter 1. And the author of Hebrews is kind of going right for the jugular in his demonstration that Jesus is better than anything else. And even we, looking back on the life of Moses, can agree that Moses was a great man. And just seeing the events of his life and seeing how God used him, how God spoke to him, how he used him to deliver uh, his people, spoke with him face to face, the miracles that God worked through him, uh, it's easy to say that he's probably one of the greatest men to ever live. And so this morning, uh, before we get into our text, I just want to look at two roles that Moses played uh, for the Israelite people. <clears throat> two, two offices uh, that, that Moses uh, worked in. And the first one is that Moses was a type of apostle for the Israelites. An apostle literally means sent one, one who is sent forth uh, with authority. And so if you want to flip back to Exodus, and we'll bounce around a few verses in Exodus for a bit. Exodus 3 Exodus 3:14 God said to Moses, "I am who I am." And he said, "Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you." God also said to Moses, "Say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you." So an apostle in this sense is kind of like a word we'd be more familiar with today would be an ambassador. So a representative from one state to another. And so Moses was God's representative before the people of Israel. He gave them the words of God. If you look at Exodus 4, 28, it says, And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of, of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. And so, <clears throat> so God sends Moses with his words for the people of Israel. So from very early on in his life, God chose him, gave him his words, sent him out to the Israelites. He was the nation of Israel's great apostle. He spoke to God face to face like a friend, and he would relay God's words, God's laws, and God's statutes concerning how to worship him and what he required of them. He was God's representative before the people of Israel. If you want to look at Exodus 18. <clears throat> Exodus 18 is a 
is a story about Moses' father-in-law Jethro, and we'll just take a little a little piece of it out here. Uh, 18, starting in 13, it says, "The next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said." What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people came to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another and I make them know the statutes of God and His laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You will not be able to do it alone. He says, now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. So that, that section tells us that the Israelites would come to Moses and he would make them know the laws of God and the way in which he was, they were to walk in them. So he would be God's representative for the people. But if you notice in verse 19, it also says that he would represent the people before God. So Moses was an apostle, a representative from God to man, and he was also their high priest, their representative from man to God. Okay? So those are the two offices of Moses. Apostle from God to man, representing God, and from man, representing man to God as high priest. So, if you've grown up in the church, you're probably like, well, I thought Aaron was the high priest, which he was, but when you just read through Exodus, you know that Aaron might have had the title, but Moses was the real mediator between God and man. He was the one who stood in the gap. So, if you want to look at Exodus 32, and you'll see this very clearly. So, in Exodus 32, God has has descended on the top of Mount Sinai in a thick cloud with fire and thunder, continually increasing blast from a trumpet, and He calls out to Moses to come up the mountain and he speaks with Moses and begins declaring to him what is the law and the people at the base of the mountain they apparently get tired that Moses isn't coming down in the time that they thought he should come down so they're like come on God let's do this this isn't what we thought it was going to be this is taking longer than we expected and with God behind them on the mountain visibly there in thick cloud, they turn and build an idol and start worshiping it and thanking it for delivering them out of Egypt. Okay? Just get that picture in your mind. God is behind them. He has descended on the mountain in thick cloud, fire, thunder, blasts from trumpets, and they grow tired that He's not operating in the time frame they want Him to operate in And so they turn and they build an idol and start worshiping it and thanking it for delivering them out of Egypt. And before we get too condescending towards the Israelites and thinking how could they do that, if you didn't believe me a few weeks ago when I said that our heart is deceitful above all things, How quickly do we enjoy God's presence, but when He doesn't operate in the time frame that we want Him to, turn and start worshiping other things. We can be just like them and be at the base of the mountain, but when God doesn't reach our expectations or He takes longer than we think He should, we turn and and create something that's more in our control that we can worship and praise. That won't disappoint us like God did. So before we get too harsh on the Israelites, 
We just need to take a quick look at ourselves. It's what the Israelites did here, and it's what we do more often than we'd like to think. So God is on the mountain giving Moses the law. The people grow tired. They begin worshiping an idol instead of the living God who's right over their shoulder. And we pick it up in verse 7 of 32. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. So he's like, they're turning from me. Why don't we just wipe them out and I'll start over with you, Moses. You're faithful to me and we'll just go, me and you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out against the land of e- brought out of the land of Egypt? with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out and kill them in the mountains to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. And in verse 14 he says, and the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So that's Moses acting as high priest. He's interceding for the people and their rebellion. Similar thing happens in Numbers 14, where Moses says to God, please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. So it's easy to see, even from those two stories, why the first century Jews that this letter was written to in Hebrews had such a high regard for Moses. He was their greatest apostle, speaking directly to God, being sent forth by God, and being his special representative to the people of Israel. And he was their original high priest, interceding for the people before God. But that's what this group of Jewish Christians were failing to see, and it's the reason that the author of Hebrews writes to them, And tells them that Jesus is greater than Moses. Moses isn't supreme. Jesus is. So if you want to turn to our text, which is Hebrews 3 and the first few verses there. And the guys can put it up. I put it in French this morning as well. For our ever-growing French population of our church. Thank you for being with us. So, Hebrews 3, and we'll read uh, the first six verses there. So, therefore, holy brothers, and some titles should stand out to you right from the get-go here, uh, as far as Jesus goes. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has, more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So the author wants to get something clear right from the start. Yes, Moses was faithful in all that he did for the Jewish nation as apostle and high priest. But consider Jesus, who was also faithful and those roles as well. In fact, verse 5 tells us that all that Moses did was to point the Israelites ahead to Christ. Okay? 
If you see that in verse 5, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. So now we, looking back, can see the life of Jesus and see the life of Moses and all these things kind of come together. So we see Jesus working in those two roles as well. So first, Moses was a type of apostle. Jesus is our great apostle. So unlike Moses, unlike anyone else, Jesus is the sent one. He left the glory of heaven when his father sent him to this world. You can read it in Philippians 2. He didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself, became a man, and fulfilled his mission here on earth. He came with the mission, he came with the purpose, and he fulfilled it perfectly. And he came with the message. Moses spoke with God and relayed the words of God to the people. Jesus didn't just speak with God, he was God. He didn't just declare God's word, he was the word of God. He's the word become flesh and dwelling among us. So the role that Moses played as apostle, as a sent one from God, declaring God's message to the people, was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And secondly, Jesus isn't just God's representative for us, from God to us, as the visible image of the invisible God that we read about in, in Hebrews 1, the exact imprint of His nature and the radiance of His glory, He is also our representative before God, the purifier of our sins, which we read in the introduction to Hebrews as well. <clears throat> and, and Paul tells us in 1 Timothy, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So when the Israelites rebelled against God, Moses cried out to God and interceded for the people of Israel, and it says that God relented of his wrath toward the people. But Jesus doesn't just cry out to God to relent his wrath, he absorbs it. He takes the full weight of God's wrath against us in our sin on the cross that should have been poured out on us in our rebellion against the holy God, and he takes it on himself on the cross for you and me. And the Bible tells us that now he constantly sits at the right hand of God, constantly making intercession for us. <clears throat> the author of Hebrews will say later that Jesus lives to make intercession for his children. Just let that sit there for a minute. He lives to make intercession for his people. He lives to do it. He lives to bring you before God the Father. He is our great high priest, both for the once and for all sacrifice on the cross when he absorbed the wrath of God and because of his constant, consistent, never-ending intercession for us at the right hand of God the Father. So Jesus is the great apostle and he is our great high priest. Now looking back at verse 2, two, you'll notice that the author starts out very welcoming to these Jewish Christians by saying both Moses and Jesus were faithful to what God called them to do. The author could have very easily pointed out some things in Moses' life and went with Moses can hold the candle to the faithfulness of Jesus. But he doesn't start out that way. He, the, the blow is kind of softened a bit. By saying, you know what, Moses was faithful in Numbers 12. God calls him a faithful servant. He was faithful in all that he did in all the, the house of God. But consider Jesus. Bring Jesus into the picture. Jesus was faithful just like Moses was faithful in all that he did. It's just that Jesus is infinitely greater both in the extent of his faithfulness and the work with which he did. And here's why. <clears throat> so that's how the author approaches this. And then he gives two reasons why Jesus is greater than Moses. And the first one 
is simple, uh, but it needs to be stated because it's so foundational. It's Jesus is worthy of more glory over Moses as the same way as a builder of a house is worthy of more glory than the house itself. The painter is worthy of more glory than the painting. The potter is worthy of more glory than the pottery. The computer science programmer is worthy of more glory than the program itself, right? The creator is worthy of more glory than the creation. It's why you praise their child, praise your child for their stick figure drawing, and you don't praise the drawing itself, okay? So boiling it down, it's Jesus is worthy of more glory because he made Moses. He's worthy of more glory than Moses because he made Moses. Moses was faithful, but he was made by Jesus. And notice verse 3 says, Jesus is the builder, Moses is the building. Verse 4 says, the builder of all things is God. And so it needs to be said again and again and again, Jesus is God. If Jesus was created, if he was just some exalted angel or heavenly being, this analogy wouldn't make sense. The author isn't comparing two historical figures in Jewish history. It's a comparison of a man to the God-man, Jesus Christ. The scales are tipped right from the get-go. Moses was faithful over here in all that he did as a servant in the house of God. But over here, we're not dealing with another sinful, created man. We're dealing with the faithfulness of the perfect Son of God. Which brings us to the second reason why Jesus is greater than Moses, even though both were faithful. Moses is faithful as a servant in the house of God, and Jesus is faithful as a son over the house. So the two words that change there, Moses is a servant in the house, Jesus is the son over the house. We look in verse 5, it says, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So, this is really what we wanted to get at this morning. So, if you were drifting a bit, now's the time to focus back in. If you were thinking about Thanksgiving or, or whatever was coming up, the Patriots versus the Bengals this afternoon, focus back in, because this is what we want to get to this morning, okay? And it's the message that I think we, we need to really drive home. And the truth is this. It's that Jesus is faithful. Jesus is the faithful son. He is our faithful apostle. He is our faithful high priest. No one can compare to him. Every other example of faithfulness that you see is just a shadow next to the substance of the faithfulness that we see in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and that's the point the author of Hebrews wants to drive home is that Moses was a faithful servant among servants of God. It's hard to see a better example of faithfulness. On earth, few can compare to him. So then, how much more the faithfulness of Jesus, the Son, not a servant? So if Moses, as a representative of God, brought God's laws, God's statutes, God's words to the people, if he was faithful in being sent out by God as an apostle with authority to bring God's message to the Israelites, how much more so, not a servant, but a son, Jesus. If God used Moses to change his people and to protect them and lead them to the promised land, how much more so, the son, Jesus. If God heard the prayers of Moses as he acted as a representative for the people before God, and if God relented of his wrath when Moses cried out to him, when he interceded for the people, how much more so now for the Son, Jesus? When When he doesn't just cry out to God to relent his wrath, he absorbs that wrath on himself. If God relented, from destroying the sinful Israelites because of Moses, how much more so you and me because of Jesus, our great high priest. 
So the whole point of this passage is to elevate the faithfulness of Moses so that the faithfulness of Jesus is elevated that much more. And we are told in verse 1 to consider Jesus, to consider this faithful Jesus, consider the faithful apostle, consider the faithful high priest, consider the faithful son, to consider the faithfulness of Jesus. And when you look through the Bible, you just see over and over and over again, God's aligning himself with this word faithfulness. So when the Lord passed by Moses on the top of the mountain, he told him he was full of mercy and grace, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. When Moses spoke to the people, he said that they need to know that the Lord is the faithful God who keeps his covenant. When Moses breaks out in song in Deuteronomy 32, he sings that God is a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. The Psalms tell us that all God's paths are faithful, that his work is done in faithfulness, that his faithfulness reaches to the clouds. In faithfulness, he will judge the world. In faithfulness, he will destroy his enemies. He answers our prayers in faithfulness. His faithfulness will be like a shield that he sets before us that his faithfulness surrounds him and goes before him, and his faithfulness endures forever. When Isaiah prophesies about the coming Messiah, he says that righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness will be like a sash around his waist. And when he sits on his throne, he will sit in faithfulness and faithfully bring forth his justice. And when Jesus came again in Revelation, John sees him on a white horse and says that his name is Faithful and true from beginning to end Jesus is faithful <clears throat> so we could end there and we could leave with some great knowledge and be encouraged that Jesus is faithful but we need to bring it home to you and me and apply this truth <clears throat> to our lives truths about Jesus are great but not if they just stay up here it doesn't mean much if it's not changing us. And so what does it mean for us? What does the truth of the infinite faithfulness of Jesus and all that he does mean for you and me today? And if you look at verse 6, it says, We are his house if we hold, fa- <clears throat> if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. How do we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and hope like verse 6 tells us to do? And it's by resting confidently in the faithfulness of Jesus. If you go over to Hebrews 10, verse 23. <clears throat> Hebrews 10:23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Very similar to what we read here. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Well, how? How, what, what can you give me that will help me do that? And he says, for he who promised is faithful. And we just need to remember where these first century Jewish Christians were, right? Nero was about to assume power. Persecution of Christianity was on the rise. And it was about to reach a level that was not yet seen. They were faced with job loss. They were faced with uh, their families turning their backs on them. They were faced with ridicule from their friends. And they were always looking over their shoulder, never knowing when things would take a turn for the worse. And the Hebrew author comes in and says, remember, hold on fast without wavering. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. He brings them back to the faithfulness of God. And for us, There are seasons in our life when it's not easy, not even as Christians, to believe and hold on to that God is faithful. And some of us this morning uh, may be walking in one of those times. Our faith is wearing down, if not worn out. The tears in our eyes can make it hard to see the outworking of His love on our life. And our minds can be a constant battlefield against the lies being fed to us by the world, the flesh, and the devil. 
We had some great plans for our life, but things have turned out quite differently than we have hoped. Friends we have relied on have failed us, family members have betrayed us, and it might seem hard to you to reconcile your present situation with the promises of grace from God on your life. And in those times, we need more than ever to be reminded of the faithfulness of Jesus. When we find it very hard, when we look at where we're at in our life, in the present circumstances around us, and the struggles that we're facing, when we find it very hard to bring what we see around us and reconcile it to the truth that God is gracious to us and that He loves us, we need to be reminded of the faithfulness of Jesus and let that truth enable and empower our faithfulness to Him. What He promises to do, He will do. He will fulfill His mission perfectly and completely. He will not forsake His children. He will not leave their side. He is faithful. His word of promise is sure in all his relations with his people, God is faithful. He may be safely relied upon. In a world where it seems that there's plenty to worry about and to have anxiety about, we need to remind ourselves that Jesus is faithful. Joe spoke last week about how Jesus' death sets us free from the fear of death. Do you remember that? Jesus' death can now set us free from the fear of death. Well, when you think about Jesus' faithfulness, it can set you free from the fear of life, about the fear of tomorrow and what tomorrow might bring. Okay? Jesus' death can set you free from the fear of death, and Jesus' faithfulness can set you free from the fear of life. No one has ever or will ever trust Him in vain. And because of that, we can be content not to know what tomorrow might bring, even if it brings suffering, affliction, pain, heartache, and all the things that we can experience in this world, in a world that is full of unfaithfulness on so many levels, we can be sure Jesus is faithful. Isaiah 50, verse 10 says, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of His servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. So if you love the Lord and you want to obey him, but currently, presently, you find yourself walking in a season of darkness where it feels like you're just wandering without a light of hope, trust in the faithfulness of Jesus. It doesn't matter if you're young or old, if you've been a Christian a long time, or if you've been Christian just a few days. If you've been a Christian just a few days, you don't have to work to reach a level of maturity where God says, okay, now they're worthy of me being faithful to them. Isaiah 43.2 says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. And if you've been a Christian for a long time, and it might feel like his faithfulness is wearing out, or he's getting tired of walking with you. Isaiah 46.4 reminds you this morning, Even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, I will bear, I will carry, and I will save. I have made you, I will bear you, I will carry you, and I will save you. I am faithful to the end. Jesus is faithful. His faithfulness enables, it empowers your faithfulness to Him. It enables you not to worry about what tomorrow might bring. It sets you free from anxiety. It empowers you to be faithful to others and to forgive unfaithfulness from others. He is faithful. He will always be with you. Consider the faithfulness of Jesus and be strengthened to be faithful in all that God has called you to now, no matter how dark it might be, no matter what suffering or pain you might encounter, no matter what unfaithfulness you might experience from others, 
Even if everything in your life falls away, your job, your finances, relationships, your health, He will remain. You do not trust Him in vain. His faithfulness endures forever to a thousand generations. Moses was great and a faithful servant, but consider the greatness and the faithfulness of the Son, Jesus Christ. That's the charge from the author of Hebrews to that church, is consider the faithfulness of Jesus. Let us hold fast our confession of our hope without wavering, even if we lose everything, for He who promised is faithful. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You are faithful in all that You do. We thank You that Your Son was faithful in the mission that You sent Him to, to come as a man and die on the cross, taking on Your wrath, purifying us of our sins, raising to new life, and now seated at Your right hand, making intercession for us. We just thank You so much, Father, that we have a faithful Jesus. And this world You've promised that in this world we will have troubles, but we just praise You that one trouble we won't have to face as we stay with You is that You will not leave us or forsake us, that You are faithful to the end, even to our old age and our gray hairs. You will carry, You will save, and You will bear us. And we thank You for that, Father. We thank You that Your faithfulness endures to a thousand generations, that nothing can outlast Your faithfulness to Your children. We cling to that promise, Father, And we just thank you so much for it. We pray, Father, that you would be with this church. We thank you that you are faithful to your church. No matter what building we are in, you are faithful to us. And we thank you so much for it. And we pray as we go back to worship you, that we would worship you as a faithful God, as a faithful uh, apostle of your son, Jesus Christ, a faithful high priest. And he is the faithful son. And we ask, Father, that your presence would be with us Because it doesn't matter what building we're in, if we don't have your presence, then it doesn't mean much. And so we just pray, Father, that your presence would be with us, that we can declare uh, to the nations your great faithfulness to us, your great love, your steadfast love that endures. We thank you so much, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.